Hello there, my friends and fellow warriors, and welcome to another episode. Today, we've got a great episode ahead of you because I have a guest, and anytime we can get perspectives and insight and wisdom from somebody else who's walked through trauma and you know, come out of the darkness and into the light, all of the places that we have been or you know, want to be, it's always great to hear from more people. So I especially like to hear from those women that I call warriors. And those are ones who have done just that. They've chosen courage. And today I have my guest who has also become a really great friend. And I think that's so cool because we would never have met otherwise. And so it's an extra added blessing to this otherwise devastating situation we find ourselves in. We can align with and connect with and link arms with some of the most incredible people. And I think part of the reason they're so incredible is because of their stories. So today my guest is Anel Abernethy. And I just first want to say welcome, Anel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really Looking forward to talking about my story, and um, I'm hoping I can reach at least one person out there who might need to hear something I have to say. Oh, I know you will. I've actually had you speak at a couple of my events, and I know that you always touch people. I've had a lot of comments from people, and uh, because you're you're real, and that's you know one of the reasons I chose you. You know, I could choose and find all sorts of people to bring on as a guest, but. What I love is authenticity and somebody who's real and not afraid to talk about what they've been through, but also maybe when they weren't in such a good place. And I think people need to hear that, don't you? No, I, I really do. Because, uh, yeah, as you well know, we can get pretty far down before we find our way back up. Right. And isn't it so easy to look at other people, right? We look at other people who are where we'd like to be or where we think they are. And it's so easy to think, well, they're just different than I am and they haven't been through what I have. And it's it's kind of, you don't connect. But I, that's why I think it's so good to be real about your struggles rather than just going, you can do it because people can't relate to you can do it if they don't understand that you've been there and now you're here. Yeah, I just really think that uh, everybody has several points of trauma it really in their lives and a lot of us here even since we're children that we're so strong and you're just this really strong person and then sometimes something just hits you that um you're not so strong anymore and it just puts you in a real strange place because you feel like you're you feel like you're kind of losing yourself because you identify as being strong and all of a sudden you can't even think straight. Right. This is all new territory, you know, and I call these life's two by fours. And okay, I just have to <laughs> tell everybody, if you don't mind, I have to tell everybody that I've talked about life's two by fours a lot because it's it's just what you're saying, Anel. And obviously we didn't even rehearse this, that, you know, out of left field, you're going along, you're confident, like you just said, and boom, something whacks you over the head, metaphorically speaking, with what I call life's two by fours. It's, it puts you in that place where you're going, what in the hell? I, I don't know what to do now. I used to be confident because I knew what to do. But what happened to you this week is you actually got hit upside the head with a real two by four, didn't you? I did. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're building a home and uh, yeah, my husband dislodged a two by four and it just hit me smack on the top of the head, full force. 
Oh my and gosh. And now, he, and now he didn't visit the life insurance office the, the day before, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, well, I, shouldn't be, I shouldn't be laughing. You got hit upside the head with a real two by four. I shouldn't be laughing. Sorry. <laughs> well, what I said is it's a good thing it didn't hit me anywhere else where it might have really done some damage. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, that hard head has helped you a lot. I'm sure it's probably actually, in all seriousness, it's probably... I got, I have one of those too. So in some ways that hard headedness of ours, probably we take longer to open ourselves up to dang, I need help and something's wrong. And I've got to, you know, I, I can't figure my way out of this, but it's also that determination that gets us there once we have an epiphany. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So speaking of these, um, and you know, we talked, we called this when the time comes, I thought was really interesting because when you started listening to this podcast, my friends, you're going, what in the world are they talking about when the time comes for what? And it's kind of, I think that what Anel said is a great lead into it that, oh my gosh, it's, I'm tooling along life feeling, you know, confident. And I understand, you know, for the most part, how to maneuver my life. And then those two by fours come, it's, it's when the time comes for us to find courage, get help, make changes and these things are not a one-time thing, especially when you experience trauma. So it's, you know, when the time comes for what? So, Anel, can you first just, uh, I, I guess, you know, we could talk a lot about your story, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm already always impressed with you because you fostered all of these babies and they were coming from very difficult situations, knowing that you weren't sure about their health because of addiction issues with their birth mothers and and uh, first of all, can I just say, wow, and thank you for being one of those people that has that courage to do that. Yeah, that was um, that was 13 years of our lives spent fostering. I never counted, but we did short, short-term fosters. Some kids, one child we had for about three hours, and some we had for closer to a year and a half. And then there's our son who we adopted out of the state system. Which and, is commendable. I'm sure you wanted to adopt a lot of them, but but Matt was the lucky one that got <laughs> adopted by you. And But I'm wondering, Anel, fast forward to the age of 15, and maybe it didn't hit then, but maybe some years when all hell broke loose for you, if you were wondering if he was the lucky one, because I have a feeling you blamed yourself. I don't have a feeling, I know, because I've been not exactly where you are, but I know how it feels when you have a a child that enters into trouble and then you figure out it's addiction and all that. And you have all this guilt. What did I do wrong? So maybe we should start out our story um, and, you know, talk a little bit about it. But I know one of the things you told me was that one of your first, when the time comes moments was <laughs> when you were on the court steps with your 15 year old son. Yeah. Um, that was when he was like, uh, Mike Bell said when he was 15 uh, was when, He'd always been a pretty compliant um, child, a real sensitive um, kid, and just a, a joy to have around. He had struggles with learning disabilities. He was born to a, a birth mother who was a heroin crack addict. And so there were, from the very beginning, I brought him home from the hospital. He weighed less than five pounds. He was so tiny. And um, he struggled. They told us at one point he may never walk. He may never talk. Well, he did both of those. There's a lot of talking. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he was a real joy. And then 
we did know things were kind of going wrong, but we kind of chalked it up to boys will be boys. And, you know, he took my car for a joy ride and, and the guys I work with all said, well, you know, I, I did that when I was his age and, and um, he was skipping school and stuff, but we were really concerned, probably should have been more than we were, but um, we were really naive. And when he was 15 though, he got arrested. And um, I found myself in juvenile court with my son being let in in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. And, um, and so we started down that journey and we still didn't really realize what was going on. I, I had never been around addiction, so I didn't really, I had no experience with that. And um, that day though, on the courthouse steps, it's very odd. Juvenile court is very odd. It's very open. All the parents are sitting in there, watch everybody else's kids go through the process. And you can just tell looking around you that everybody kind of seems shell-shocked. And um, when I came outside and Matt was being processed out so he could come home with me, I was alone. My husband hadn't gone with me. And there was another woman standing out on the steps and she was sobbing and I just walked over to her and, um, and I put my arms around her and we didn't exchange a word, but as I was holding her and, and of course I was crying too. And I just remember at that time asking God to somehow use what, and I remember the words I used were, please God use whatever is happening, whatever this is to help other people. And, and it was just a brief moment. And then I drove home and, and we started down, we, we jumped on that roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> we got shoved onto that roller coaster and took off screaming like Montezuma's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now, you know, at this point though, okay. So now this is your kind of new normal this is your new maybe it wasn't normal you thought things were going to go back to normal I'm assuming at this point oh absolutely and he was uh remanded into a uh tre drug treatment facility and we thought oh it's drugs and he's going to treatment so great he's going to come out in six weeks and everything's going to be great and uh no <laughs> that is not how it happens you know and now it, it's interesting you say that because it's, you know, I, I never want people to not have that hope because it, it sometimes that does happen. It does work once in a while. Yeah. But for most of us who've been down this road after a few years in, we realize that, yeah, it doesn't always work like that or take like that. And then, so I feel like when that happened for you, a, a little bit of that hope that you had got destroyed. And so now you found yourself in another situation and I want you to talk about that and still pretty deep in denial I I mean I understood drugs but I didn't I don't I guess I I don't know Val it was a very weird state to be in I and then I got a call it was probably about a year and a half later my husband called me I was just finishing my day up at work and uh, he told me to come down and meet him at the hospital that Matt had overdosed and um, had been left at the park by his quote unquote friends and yeah. been in the hospital in an ambulance had been 
revived with Narcan. And um, that was when I really understood that we were talking heroin. He wasn't just smoking some pot or, you know, uh, taking some speed or any of the stupid things I did when when I was in my early 20s we were talking some really serious stuff was going on and uh so I went to the hospital and as I was parking to go in out walks out the door Bob with my son Matt and his dad and uh I'm like okay so my kid was basically dead and now I'm just supposed to take him home and take and keep an eye on him and it, and again, I just, I was so far in over my head and it just seemed like it was happening so fast that I really, really became aware. And so I couldn't, I realized I, there'd been a lot of things going on in that year and a half with stealing from us and all kinds of things that go along with, with having an addict in your house. And um, I, just thought I can't, I can't go home. I, cause I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. I need to figure out what to do. And I drove down by a river that was close by us and it was nighttime by then. And I remember sitting there and I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a woman that believes in prayer and faith. And I felt pretty tattered by that time. And I remember I, as I was driving to the river, I was getting angrier. I was so mad by the time I got there. All I could do was sit in that car and pound the steering wheel with my fist and just, I was just screaming at God to, you have to stop this because I can't, I don't know what to do and I can't stand it and I can't take it. And it, until I couldn't anymore, I just got exhausted. And as I was sitting there in my exhaustion, I, heard that still small voice that we hear in our hearts that just said, I am your father and I love you and I love your son even more. So just be still and know that I am God. And I wish I could say that in that moment, everything changed, but it didn't. And I just continued on my journey and Matt continued on his. You know, and now that, bless your heart, I, I get so, I have not heard this story once or twice. We've talked about this several times. Every single time I hear the story though, I can picture you. I can picture, it's so weird. I've got this picture of, I don't even know what kind of car you had or anything or what the river looks like. But in mm -hmm. my mind, I have the picture, the vivid picture. I can feel the feeling. I've been there too, screaming at God and then feeling bad about it and thinking, ah, oh, well, he's been screamed at by better people than me. So I think, he, I think he can take it. But I, I think what's interesting too, is that thank you for saying that too, that you didn't have that big epiphany and off you went, because sometimes I think people of faith, we feel like, man, dang it, man. I hear stories of people that go, la, 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 la. I had that still small yeah. voice. I had that thing and off I went. And, and I think, well, my faith must be really bad because I've never had one of those moments where maybe it goes back to our thick heads. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I've never had one of those moments. So I feel like now I'm listening to you and I'm thinking again about how we wanted to talk about these, these uh, moments when, okay, let's take another left turn, right turn, U-turn, life's changing again. So now you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know how to fix this. I, 
I know what it feels like, Anel, to want to run away from home. That's what you did. You ran to the river, right? Anywhere yeah. but home. Because when you walk in the front door of that house, you thought it was your responsibility to fix something. Right. I, okay. Yeah. I That was totally where my head was at. And I really, I really believe that if I could just say or do or figure out and I, I dove into reading all kinds of stuff about addiction. I mean, I talked about it incessantly until people were sick of hearing about it because I thought if I could just figure it out, I could save him. Of course. And who, I mean, who wouldn't feel that way? So now you're sitting there with these two feelings or, you know, I mean, I can only imagine your exhaustion and your brain and your heart all, you know, jumbled up going, I'm so mad at you, God. And then him going, yeah, okay, I get it. You're mad. But I love you. I love him even more. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't say, okay, and now here's how to fix it. Right. You know, I'm the creator of the universe. Let me give you the thing that you've been looking for. I don't yeah. understand why he doesn't, Anel, and I don't understand why we can't and all that. It just is what it is. So he's asking you to let go, to release, to trust not to trust that Matt's going to be okay necessarily, but that it is not your thing to control. And that right there, my friends, for any of you listening who has a loved one in addiction and especially a, a child, what God was asking you to do that sounds like such a peaceful moment to me. And now when he said, be still, we always think of that scripture, right? Oh, be still and know that I'm God. What he was asking you to do right there was to put on your spiritual armor like you've never had it on before and to fight in a totally different way. Right. A hundred percent. Because I'm not a still person. You know me. And I. <laughs> oh, I am an L. <laughs> yeah. We're two peas in a pod in that mm -hmm. way. <laughs> um, so and uh, I mean, I it was a struggle. I I would. I'm a stubborn, stubborn woman. And I can remember even sitting in church. I sometimes I was so mad and I was mad at Matt. I was mad at, oh, there, there's plenty of people you can be mad at when you love someone in addiction. <laughs> I was oh, the, list, the list is long. The, the people who don't say anything, the people who say things, the person that dealt them the drugs, the court system, your husband. I mean, well, yeah, the, the, the list is long, my friends. Long. <laughs> <laughs> so and, you know, I want to talk about another moment. Yes. When the time came for you. And it's funny because your moment was in a kitchen and my pivotal moment, as you know, is also in a kitchen. So I've all often wondered, what is it about the kitchen? We know that's kind of the, the center of the home, but I also wonder if maybe we're spending too much time in the kitchen. I don't know. <laughs> but it, you're, I want to get it just a little perspective on time between when Matt was 15 and the the time, the story that you are about to tell, how many years, you don't have to tell me how many tears and how much chaos, because that's a given. How many years approximately between that and this next time? I think it's about three or four years. Okay. These are really so bad. And he'd, he'd been in treatment a couple more times. He'd been in jail many times. Um, he'd stolen just about everything in the house that wasn't nailed down. I mean, it, we were deep in it. And uh, can I just before you tell that story, and I just want to do a little connection here because I want the listeners to think about this. So in these ensuing years from the time that we just talked about where God told you to be still and to trust and you had to put on your armor and we and we said all that it often when we tell stories that just have uh, bullet point moments, 
we kind of lose the in-between. And I know you just mentioned some of that in-between. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering um, how many moments you were so just not in that space that you were at the river when he finally wore you down and said, you know, be still. I'm sure that was pushed far back somewhere. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't still. I I was still. <laughs> I was still under the impression that it was up to me to fix it, and that um, it was just. It was there was just so much chaos, and I could not find that place of being still. But that verse, I, now I have that verse everywhere. It hangs from my rearview mirror. It's all over my office when I have an office again, um, and I. In the back of my mind, I always clung to it, and I, but I just couldn't do it yet. I, I hadn't happened that epiphany or whatever. That moment had not come for me to surrender. So tell me about the moment. And the moment came on. I'm pretty sure it was Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving day, and Matt was in jail again. And my whole family, I have six grand, well, now I have seven grandkids and, and um, my adult kids, everybody was there except Matt because he was in jail. And I was in the kitchen cooking, making dinner and stuff. And the, everybody else was out in the dining room, which was, sep- it was a separate room. And I could hear them. And they were having, were loud <laughs> and they were having a great time and they were setting the table and I don't know what they were doing and laughing and talking. And I was in the kitchen by myself crying because Matt wasn't there. I could not separate the good part of my life. I could not cling on to that. I was completely immersed in the fact that Matt wasn't there, that Matt was sinking and he was taking me down with him and as I was standing in there crying my grandson who I think was about 16 at the time there's just a couple years between him and Matt um he came in and he and I wasn't sobbing I was just standing there with tears running down my face and he came up and he wrapped me in his arms gave me a big hug and he said Matt's gonna be okay grandma And I thought, in that sweet, sweet moment, I thought, this is something crazy is happening here because I'm the grandma, right? I'm, I'm the grandma. I'm supposed to be an example to this young man and I'm losing it and I'm missing out on my grandkids growing up. I, I'm just this mess. And he knew what I was crying about, even though I hadn't said anything, right? He, he didn't know what, I mean, he knew what was going on, but it just seemed so wrong to me. It was, and I thought, I have got to do something. I've, I've got to do something else besides focus on addiction. I've got to do something to get my life back because I'm losing my family, my husband, my friends, and not because they're deserting me. But because I am just pulling everything into myself, it's like a big black hole of addiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, and that was a time, that was the time came then when I 
could finally be still enough to hear exactly what it is that God had planned for me that I had asked on those courthouse stairs year, several years before. I, and I was ready to begin my own recovery. I've heard other parents say, why do I need to recover? I'm not the addict. Huh. Well, me, you do. <laughs> you oh, need yeah, to no, no. We become addicted to trying to save them. There's Absolutely. definitely an addiction. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm just taking all this in and um, thinking of a couple things. First of all, we do have to give ourselves a little bit of a break when we're in the kitchen doing that because, you know, it, these are love and fear, are very strong emotions. And mm -hmm. you, you know, those were enveloping you. And um, obviously your grandson, Sean is, was perceptive mainly probably because he already is. But second of all, this wasn't the first time you were in the kitchen isolated from your family. Mm -hmm. Right. No, not at all. But so I guess like a couple of things that I'm thinking about though, this is what it's all about. And now your moment, I love that your moment included Sean, because you realize that all of this is bigger than yourself. And listen, if at first you have to get up my friends and fight for whatever you do it for any reason. And if you have to do it because I care about me, period, end of story, doesn't matter, do it. Mm -hmm. But I can see laced throughout your story and these notes that I'm taking as you're talking laced throughout your story from the, from the very beginning, when you start, when you were fostering these babies, these, I mean, these weren't just healthy babies either. So when you're all already, you're fostering these babies, when you stepped outside of yourself and hugged that other mom on the courthouse steps, when you asked God, what, you know, how, how can I use this? Mm -hmm. I, I have to tell you something now. And, th and then with Sean, your grandson, when you're going, he, it's not fair. He, I should be an example to him. I can see laced throughout your story that you always wanted to be a leader. You always wanted to make sure your legacy was more. And I have to say it's commendable because a lot of people, and now they don't get to that place until they get healthy. But if they could get to that place during the chaos, I think they could make the choice to get healthy quicker. Did that make sense? It does. Yeah. It, it takes courage to even want to become healthy. I, I mean, I remember I, I used to be a FedEx driver. I'm retired now, but um, I remember being in my truck and thinking it would be so easy to just turn the wheel and just slam into a tree or something and not have to go home and find my son strung out or, you know, find him shooting up dope in the bathroom with somebody else or find the front door broken down or, you know, it would just be so easy. Right? It, it seemed like that would be the easy thing. Yeah. Is, you know what? That's interesting. You say that because it does take courage to reclaim your life. It takes courage to, to be an example. It takes courage to stop focusing and, and allowing yourself to, to self-destruct, but geez, I wonder how much courage it takes for us to stay in chaos. I mean, that's no easy life. Oh, that's true. That's very true. That's a good point. So here, okay. So after the kitchen moment, when you realize, okay, that's it. Okay. I, I Matt is taking me down with him. I need to yeah. be an example. I'm missing out on my life, my family, my purpose. I'm missing out. I'm missing it. Like Matt and I are over here. We're going down and everyone else is over here. So now what did you do? And I know this wasn't a, the next day you did this and off you went and life was wonderful, but where did you go from there? Well, I, I, a friend of mine um, at church whose son 
also they were starting down the same path they pretty much the same <laughs> and she invited me to this new parent group that was forming in a nearby town and and this just kind of goes to show you how I was thinking I I decided I would go to this meeting but I didn't want to go to this meeting but I was so determined that I was going to start doing something for me that I went but I didn't she was there and I didn't even talk to I just kind of snuck in and sat down I didn't talk to anybody else I just kind of listened but the thing that that really did for me was I realized I wasn't alone because here's this room full of people of parents that looked just like me they weren't like I don't know they weren't like a drug addict parents. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's talk about that for a second, because I know that, you know, I've, I I think even in my first book, I wrote about this, that, you know, I, I called it falling off my soapbox because I didn't have to ever wonder what anyone was thinking of me as a parent when they came across Jamie in whatever situation. I never had to think about what they must think about me. I already knew because I used to think that about other parents uh -huh. like you, when you walked in and saw you know, the, the gamut of people from all walks of life and from different occupations and from economic statuses and all this kind of stuff, it kind of blows your mind because I used to think, oh, those parents, oh yeah, they're the ones that like smoke pot with their kids when they were six. And, right. you know, those are really bad parents. Those are the ones that don't have jobs. And that's what we think until we're there. A hundred percent. And I've learned so much since then because I did start from that I did join I, I did start going to meetings and there's a lot there are good meetings out there and, and this was this was 15 years ago you know 14 15 years ago and things are much better now for parents than they were even back then there are there are places you can go there's your amazing program um, that's not just about addiction, but because, you know, trauma is trauma. And so, and hope is hope. Doesn't matter, you know, so, uh, you know, but for me, because of my particular thing that I was going through and, and through those groups, I began to have, as I began to get better, there was a place where I could pour into other people and that is what really, really helped me so much. I, I mean, I've heard so many stories, I, you know, just thinking about what you were just saying. I sat in a room after a meeting, a, a guy came up to me and he said, my dad, my father is a very prominent lawyer and I can't even tell you his name. And he started to cry and he said, I can't even tell him that my son is an addict because there's so much stigma and it just broke my heart. It was like, cause there is, there's just so much judgment and, and stigma around addiction and um, homelessness, which often is where our addicts end up. Yeah. And um, you know, and, and, and those stories, it, it wasn't the stories themselves. It was just the fact that I was at a point, I had gotten better to the point where somebody could come up to me and tell me that. And I didn't feel like I had to fix him. 
you know, now, just, now that is really a turning point in your life. That must, that's a real growth to, to not feel because I remember that too, is that when I first started on my messaging and everything and helping people, your first thought is that you need to just fix everybody, but you know, you can't get involved in everybody's story and keep doing what you're doing and reaching out to people. Um, but what I love what you said, Anel, is that pouring into, you know, when you started pouring into others, I think that was your turning point probably in your own personal development and recovery was mm -hmm. when you started pouring into others. And I said this earlier, people miss this. Yeah. Miss that point. And you don't have to go out and start a nonprofit. You don't have to do what I'm doing. You don't have to do anything like that. You, I know that you have a Facebook group that is an open group, right? Yeah, it's okay. public. And it is called Addiction, What Families Want You to Know. Yes. And I think that's so interesting that um, if if more people would tune into that, tune into, you know, what do families want you to know? Because we're, we're kind of scared if we're not in addiction. I remember, now, if I had met somebody with my story or heard my story back then, I might not have wanted to, like, you know, befriend me because it would scare me. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Things like addiction and people being shot and stuff like that and going to jail and being homeless, those are scary topics. And so I think what it really takes, I mean, in order to, you know, break the stigma, it takes people like us who are from all walks of life. And we aren't people who held our kids down and gave them drugs. We're not on the streets. We're not without jobs. We're not irresponsible people. It takes people like us to stand up and show the world really, truly what addiction in the family looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of my mission or however you want to put it. And I, I do want to say here too, that, you know, and I was going to these groups and I was doing better. And then you've written other books since, and, um, you know, you have the, um, the nine, the nine weapons of hope and the, Yeah. <laughs> Anel can't remember this because she's been around when it was called the nine actions. <laughs> <Keep saying. laughs> yeah, but I've taken that and evolved it because you know what we learn, we learn and we grow and there's so many or more resources in the nine weapons than there are in any of my books. It's far beyond that. Um, that it's, and it's the same messaging. It's but, the same messaging, but it really takes everything to a new level with different perspectives and much more support and guidance and ability yes. and, and progress tracking and all that. But but I think it was really super cool, and now because I came across the other day, um, a, a snapshot uh, of a post you made somewhere on my Facebook, where you said that you had really, I guess, devoured the my workbook, and that you were going to try to find some women to lead a group. Yes, and I did do that, and we went through your workbook, and it was it was awesome. And, um, but what I want to, what I really want to say about that, the nine weapons of hope, whatever you want to call them, those tools are, they are life changing because I felt like I could focus on doing, on doing those things. And they're not like, it's not like step, you make a progression through them. They are an integral, um, they integrate with each other and you can integrate them into every aspect of your life. It's just an amazing, they're just amazing things. Oh, thank and, you. And yeah, that, and that really is what really got me going. That just, and well, I, I mean, I appreciate that Anel, and I do, and I take it all in and it's very humbling, but the bottom line is, is all the tools and resources can be laying at your feet. 
you went, you're the one that has to step up and, and find the courage and the dedication and set aside excuses and, and um, distractions and make some sacrifices. If you really want to get better, because I meet people all the time and hear from people all the time. Oh, I wish I could be strong like you, or, you know, I need to do this. I want to do that. I should do that, but they don't ever do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I. Can you imagine being, I mean, I look back at my notes and I have this paper just covered in notes here, but can you imagine being back where you were on the courthouse steps and feeling as you did or, yeah. or at the river yeah. or even at, in the kitchen before Sean came in, you know, before you went on your journey, before you found your support group and got better, before you found the nine weapons, before you found me, can, I mean, can you imagine being back there? And that's why I think is such a good message is that we know what it feels like, my friends that are listening. And Nell knows what it feels like to be where you are, if that's where you are. If you're somewhere in the middle, she also knows how that feels. But to be on the other side, that's not to say there's no grieving. Your son is homeless. You go for long periods of time without even knowing where he is or if he's alive. That's heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. And my friends, Anel grieves. She gets frustrated. She wonders why at times she's not some perfect non-human. But being where you are now has to be when you look back like a different lifetime it does it, it really does and yeah I mean there is no at this point there is he's 32 years old now and there is no happy ending there there's not now I not that I don't have hope <laughs> that there will be in the future but um there's there, things have not changed for him everything has changed for me and I was able to stop enabling and, and I was able to stop blaming myself all night in the dark of the night, night after night. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know how that feels. Absolutely. And yeah. That- so I think that, you know, obviously we talked a little bit about finding your purpose. And I think what's important for listeners to understand too, is when you're in this situation and you you know, you go find a purpose. Make, can I just say, make sure that you are not going out and finding your purpose and ignoring all of your personal growth that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear about this every now and then we'll hear about it, maybe say from a pastor who spends all his time out, you know, taking care of the flock and his, his family's falling apart. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes we can go out and try to, you know, be there for other people and not make sure that we are building our solid foundation and our courage and confidence and our hope and finding peace in our lives. And I'm talking about in our personal heart and soul, we need, so don't wait to go out and help other people and to um, pour into others as Anel says, but you've got to be working on yourself because this thing has changed you. Whatever trauma you've been through, even if Matt were to get clean tomorrow and we never lose hope for that, and, and it's fast forward how many years and he's just doing so well. It's incredible. If you had not gotten better, I mean, would it, would it just have fixed everything in, inside of you if Matt had just gotten better? Well, that's a really good point. I, I mean, I, I really do. I really do believe that there is a purpose, whether I understand what that purpose is or not. 
I don't know, and you know that I've spent some time on the streets in Seattle a few years ago, um, talking to street people and stuff. Yes. And I, I never had some big message. I wasn't a street preacher or anything, but I had some really amazing conversations with people I never would have talked to before. I, and I, and I, I started the conversations usually because I was looking for Matt down and if I hadn't heard from him for months. And this just went on for a period of time. I, I really felt that God called me to do that for a period of time. And I still, once in a while, if I see, I saw a girl in a restaurant a few months ago and it was obvious to me that she was an addict and she was wet. I'd seen her walking down the road as we were on our way to the restaurant. So, um, I knew that she was uh, walking on the highway and I just went up to her and I slid into the seat across from her and um, she, she, I listened to her a little bit of her story and I just asked her if I could pray with her and I did. And then I went back over and sat down with my husband who's wondering what's going on. Cause I just, no, like, he's not, he's that's yeah. not the first time you've done that. He's not wondering anything. <laughs> <laughs> when those things happen. I just like pop out of my seat and go, I don't say anything. You know, it's like, <laughs> okay <laughs> and um but the waitress came over and she had a tear in her eye and she said that's exactly something my, my grandma would have done Aww. so you don't know who you don't know whose life you're touching and yeah, not what a good point and now because we talk about this that little things are big things you will probably never know unless somehow she stumbles across you but what if that was her moment what if that was her kitchen moment Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just by being still and being willing to get better and being willing to be used as a servant. And like I say, you don't, I'm not advocating that everybody go wander around the streets of Seattle and talk to homeless people, <laughs> or, you know, or any of that, any of the things that I'm doing. But maybe it's just going in your prayer closet and quietly praying for everybody <laughs> the, or you know if you see a homeless person rather than thinking oh you know there's one of those you know, drug addict homeless people or something if you're a praying person maybe pray for them instead and yeah. those things and nobody has to know I mean I don't tell these stories because I want anybody to think I'm any big deal or anything because I'm not I just well, I think you're I, actually, I think you're a big deal. And I think that you've always had a servant's heart. Um, and I'll bet you a million dollars that even when you felt like all you did was talk about addiction, you were still serving. It was just in a different way. And um, I just am so incredibly thankful that our paths crossed because I've gotten a lot of inspiration from you. And I mean, sometimes when I hear your story, even though I already know it, I'm in awe of your moments and your perspective and your faith and um, just your willingness, because most people wouldn't get up. They'd think about it, but they wouldn't get up and go slide into the booth. And so I think, I feel like, I feel like at the end of this podcast, it, it just came to me to, to listeners do something, you know, we're not giving you the play by play of how to do it, but do something to get yourself better, do something to make sure that you are reaching out to others. And that's why in my nine weapons of hope, uh, your legacy is one of the weapons. And 
I put it at the end. And in my course, I delivered, you know, you get this content delivered over a period of time. It's over a four month period. And I sometimes go, oh, I hate that it's at the end for the very reasons you're saying, Anel, because I feel like your calling, your mission, your heart, you're always wanting to serve was probably such a catalyst in pulling you along to where you are today. And I, I'm not grateful for Matt's addiction, but I am grateful for the way it's changed me. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm, I'm, like I said in the beginning, thank you so much for just letting me come and, and talk about this because it's something so near and dear to my heart. And so I, something I just feel so passionately about that, that we talk about addiction and, um, and bring it out of the closet. It, I mean, it's everywhere now. Yeah. But, and not, not just addiction for those in addiction. We don't have the answers for that. Nope. But <laughs> this, the fallout, the collateral damage from addiction, I don't know that people until now have understood what it does to families. And so I appreciate everything you're doing, Anel. I hope you'll come back again. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to connect with Anel, you should go to her Facebook group called Addiction, What Families Want You to Know, <clears throat> excuse me, because, um, you know, dr whatever, drop her a line, connect with her. She has incredible wisdom. And um, I just know that that a lot of people got more than one little something out of today. So thank you again, Anel. And playing off our title. When the time comes, will you come back and join me again? Oh, I absolutely will. You know, anytime. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I love you, Anel. Bye, everybody. Bye, Val. Love you, too. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. And in the meantime, if you want to jump into Warriors and Hope, and get access to free resources and check out all of our other coaching and resources, go to warriorsandhope.com. Whatever you're going through, know that you are not alone. I'm standing right there with you and alongside you as you stand up and learn how to fight, how to become a warrior in hope.